Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church, wherever you're joining us from and whenever you're joining us from. I want to welcome you here. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And if you are tuning in live, we're really excited um, that today is Palm Sunday, which means we are entering into Holy Week coming up on Easter. Palm Sunday, of course, is that classic children's Bible story we love so much, where Jesus coming to Jerusalem, approaching what ultimately would lead to his death and then resurrection, comes into the city um, and is celebrated by the people, where they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It's this beautiful story of Christ being exalted and welcomed as he truly is a king. And it's a classic Sunday school story, right? It's joyful. It's fun. Nothing seems to be going wrong at this point. Plus, it's really easy to get a craft for it. All you need is some glue, some scissors, some green construction paper, and everything's ready to go. But if we're honest, sometimes we we look at stories like this and we're comfortable with them and, and we're not as comfortable with the rest of the Bible. I remember when I was a teenager and I had first become a Christian, I decided to get baptized. And at the church I was at, we went through a baptism class, similar to what you'd go through here, sitting down with one of our pastors or leaders, chatting about what baptism is and why it matters. And in this kind of class setting, I was with a number of other people, including someone who was a little bit older than me, who had also decided they wanted to be baptized. And I remember... We were talking through who God was and what God was like and, and, and how God saved people and why we were going to get baptized. And, and he said this really interesting thing. He said, I'm excited to get baptized because I believe in the God of the New Testament. I, I believe in who God is according to the New Testament. And I'm so glad that Jesus showed up and God changed. I'm so glad that Jesus showed up and, and it's so clear to me now that God is so much different in the New Testament than he is in the old. And we might not voice it, but oftentimes we feel a similar divide, don't we? Like how God saved people in the Old Testament and New Testament seems quite different. If you go and read the Old Testament, you see things like animal sacrifice, you see a temple system, you see incredibly specific religious laws and orders being followed by the people of Israel. And it would be easy to look at the Old Testament and on first reading, like many of you have experienced, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, or if you just open the Bible to page one and start reading, it's easy to get a little bit confused. How could the God that we say we follow be the same as the God that we read about in the Old Testament? See, I think the reality is some of our greatest doubts and questions come up with what seems to be contradictions about who God is and who, what God is like when we read the Bible. If you talk to people who are struggling with their faith or or even deconstructing their faith, that's the kind of challenges they're facing, right? How do I reconcile that God is a God of love and yet these violent things happen in the Old Testament? How can I understand that God is this loving, caring, kind father when I read about all the rules and regulations that don't make any sense to my Western Canadian mind? I I think the reality though, and what's important for us as a church, as followers of Jesus to do, is actually to address these questions. 
A.J. Swoboda, an author out of Portland, Oregon, um, writes about this, and he, and he talks about this challenge of doubt, and, and he points to two kind of errors that often can be made culturally in the culture of church. And the first is, is that of the progressive world. And the progressive world, it valorizes, it makes doubt this heroic thing. You should tear down your faith. You should tear the Bible to shreds. You should point out all the contradictions. It's a joke. It's ridiculous. Just get rid of it. Figure out what you believe and what works for you. We will use today's standards and today's morals to measure what is true. And that is an issue, but the problem, and maybe more so for many of us who call this church home, would be the conservative world where doubt is demonized where we treat doubt as something to run away from or ignore or suppress. But as A.J. Swoboda in the subtitle of his excellent book on doubt called After Doubt says, there is a way to question your faith without losing it. And that's also what Paul was trying to get at when he wrote the book of Romans, particularly, particularly writing to Jewish people. See, that's what Paul's readers would have understood. This is why Paul is writing something that to them would have been so offensive and so mind-altering and so mind-blowing. See, proper religious people, the Jewish people, they knew how things worked. They had read their Old Testaments. They knew what God was like. They knew who they were. We are, as they themselves would have put it, the sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the circumcised. We are the nation of God. We are the ones who God has chosen. We know what God is like. We know how God operates. So don't push against that. Don't challenge it. Don't mess with what's comfortable and what we understand to be true. Which is why what Paul is saying is so offensive. See, to them, Paul's arguments have started out compelling and clear, right? In Romans 1, he talks about all being worthy of God's wrath. And it would be easy for the religious to look and say, yes, the pagans, they don't get it. Look at how bad they are. Look at how messed up they are. Hear Paul's arguments about the brokenness of the world. And they say, yes, I see how broken the world is. I know how broken the world is. I know how messed up that it is out there. How could people be so foolish? But as Paul moves through his arguments through Romans 1, 2, and 3, he moves from those outside the so-called family of God to those inside it. He calls out hypocrisy. He calls out the insufficiency of the law to save anyone. And ultimately, he makes the claim that all that the law is able to do is to make us aware of our sin, is to make us aware of our need for a savior. And that the only way that people can be saved, the only way that people can be justified before God is not through their own work, but through the completed work and shed blood of Jesus on behalf of all people, not just Jews, not just the so-called sons and daughters of Abraham. But through our modern lens, you may not realize what Paul is doing. He is totally and completely undermining or even changing the Jewish understanding of how someone was meant to be saved. To them, the scriptures are clear. You obey the law, you get circumcised, you make sure that you follow all the rules and regulations, learn from the rabbis what you are supposed to be doing, 
Go through all the observances. Live your life right. When you mess up, sacrifice an animal to pay for that sin, and then you will be okay with God. They had placed their hope and their salvation primarily in the fact that they were Jewish and not in God's love for them. And now Paul shows up and he's writing this letter and he's saying these things like everybody's welcome. Everybody can get in on this. This is not just for Jews, but for Gentiles also. Everybody is just as under the wrath of God and the power of sin. And everybody is just as able to take hold of the freedom that Jesus offers. Is Paul saying that God has just changed the rules? Did he abandon the plan? Is God switching the way that he saves people? Do things just operate differently now? And who is Paul to decide that that's what God is doing? And that's why Paul writes chapter four in the book of Romans. That's where we'll be today to look at this man named Abraham. See, what Paul wants to do is show the Jewish people, show his readers that God has not changed. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that the way that God saves people is no different now than it was for Abraham. Here's what, it, here's what he writes in Romans 4, starting in verse number 1. Paul, writing to a primarily Jewish audience, writes this. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what did the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now the one who does works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Quoting Psalms, he writes, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. See, Paul goes straight in. Paul goes straight in and brings up the two most iconic members of the Jewish faith, David and Abraham. And we'll focus more on Abraham today, but why would he choose those two? Well, David, it's, it's obvious. David was the greatest king of Israel. He was like the Michael Jordan of what it meant to be a Jewish person and follower of God. He was the goat. He was the man. He wrote the Psalms. He wrote Israel's prayer book. But Abraham... Abraham was more like James Naismith. He invented the whole thing. He was the one who began the Jewish family, began the Jewish faith. He was the forerunner. He was the beginning of the story that God was telling through the people of Israel. And so Paul goes to Abraham to point out that it was by grace that Abraham was saved. Because if it was by works, Paul says, then God would have owed Abraham something and God didn't owe Abraham anything. Just look at his story. Let's quickly review. If you're familiar with it, you'll know it from the book of Genesis. In Genesis 12, this man named Abram, we don't know much about him. We just know that he finds himself out in the woods living his life. He's called by God. 
and not knowing where he was meant to go, God gives him this call to go to the land that he will send him to. God doesn't tell him what that land is. He just tells him to go. But he's being asked to trust God and God gives him this promise that we'll read in just a second, this promise to bless him, to bless all nations through him. And, and so Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they, they pick up and they go. They follow what God asked them to do. They end up in this land called Canaan that's inhabited, inhabited by the people called the Canaanites. And, and God said, this is the place. He gives them this promise of the land. This is the place that will be called your land. And, and then all sorts of things happen in the life of Abraham, good, bad, and ugly. We see familial issues. He shows up in Egypt. He's worried about Sarah and her beauty and what that'll mean. So he lies about who Sarah is. He's got all these relational issues with his nephew Lot. Hoping to take hold of God's promises, he takes those things into his own hands, tries to bring about an heir through his servant Hagar. That is a complete mess of a situation. But right in the middle of all this mess, in Genesis chapter 15, we find God makes a covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And while Abraham is sleeping, God himself makes the covenant right in the middle of the mess. And right in the middle of Genesis 15, right as God is making this covenant with Abraham, we find this little verse. Here's what it says. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then later on in the story in Genesis 17, that's when God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And he begins this practice of circumcision, which many of you will be familiar with. And what it is, is it's this confirmation of the covenant. Here's what it says in Genesis 15. God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarah, do not call her Sarai anymore for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her indeed. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce, produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. But Abraham, he fell face down and he laughed to himself. How can a child be born to a hundred year old man? Can Sarah, a 90 year old woman, give birth See, Abraham has gone through the steps and he's trusted God and he's trying to have this faith. But in this moment, God gives him this promise, a promise of an heir, of a son that would be born to him at a hundred years old. And Abraham just almost laughs and goes, that's not even realistic. I don't understand how you're promising that, God. How, how could you promise that? But if you know the story of Abraham, you know that God provides exactly that. God does keep his promises. God does provide him and Sarah with a son. And every Jewish person that Paul's writing to, they would have known this story. It was baked into their cultural identity that they were children of Abraham. That was who they were. That was how they found their identity. That circumcision, that sign that God had given Abraham of their covenant was the sign that they were right with God. That was the proof that was the way to know that someone really was someone who God loved. Were they circumcised just like Abraham? But here's Paul, a Jew, and he's unraveling everything. He seems to be dismissing the work of God simply because this one prophet named Jesus shows up. 
Jesus shows up, teaches some new things, and all of a sudden everything God's done throughout the history of the people of Israel doesn't matter anymore. You don't have to get circumcised now. All of a sudden anyone's welcome to join the family of God. I thought this was just for us. What do you mean it's not about the law? We've spent hundreds of years figuring out how to follow the law, making sure we don't do anything wrong, making sure we look right, making sure everything is okay. But what Paul is showing them is that God has not changed, but rather that they have missed the plot. That in all their obsession with rules and regulation and laws and who's in and who's out, they missed it. So here's the reality. Nothing will distract you more from what God is actually doing than sitting around and arguing about religion. Nothing will distract you more, my friends, from what God is trying to do in your life than arguing about whose sin is worse or who's really a Christian or who's actually got the right ideas about God or who's actually got the right theology. Yes, there is core beliefs, core doctrines that we hold to the creeds, our statement of faith. But when we sit around and all we want to do is argue about secondary issues, we, just like the readers of Paul, will miss out on what God is trying to do. And what Paul is trying to show us is that Abraham's story shows us that what God has been doing has been the same throughout all of human history. From the moment he found Adam and Eve wandering the garden, naked and ashamed, this is what he has been building to. And the first thing Paul wants us to understand is really simple, but really beautiful. It's the mission of God. Here's what he writes in Romans 4. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that the righteousness may be credited to them also. He became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith, our father Abraham, while he was still uncircumcised. See, what Paul is referring to is God's original promise, God's original covenant. In Genesis 12, that's where God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I'll make you a new great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And then this final line, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. All people on earth will be blessed through you. See, so consumed were the people with the first part of the promise about themselves, about their own nation, about their own people, about making their own name great, about getting more power for themselves, that they missed the second part of the blessing. They seem to have forgotten that the promise didn't stop at themselves. It kept going. God was not just saving one person. God was not just saving one family. 
God was not just saving one people group. God was seeking to bless and to save all people. Here's what Christopher Wright says in his book called The Mission of God. The whole Bible is the drama of this God of purpose engaged in the mission of achieving his purpose universally, embracing past, present, and future Israel and the nations, life, the universe, and everything. And with its center, its focus, its climax, and its completion in Jesus Christ. Mission is not just one of the list of things that the Bible happens to talk about only a bit more urgently than some. Mission is, in that much abused phrase, what it is all about. This is why Paul is honing in on the importance that everyone is welcome in this new kind of family. God's family. It's global. It's multi-ethnic. It's multicultural. It's filled with all sorts of people, of all sorts of backgrounds, of all sorts of places and experiences and upbringings. And everyone is welcome. God is not content to rescue and then retreat, to take a small portion of people and then run away into heaven and leave the rest of us on our own. But we live in an individualistic culture that says it's all about me and the meaning of life is to figure out what I need, what I want, what gives me meaning, what gives me joy, what gives me comfort. Rather, the story of grace is always bigger than just one person. Abraham, as it says in the promise of Genesis 12, is blessed to be a blessing. He is given promises for more than just himself. And for Abraham... God's promises of blessing come before Abraham's obedience. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, all happened before Abraham becomes circumcised in Genesis 17. That's what Paul is getting at. We need to understand the order in which salvation happens. Abraham is justified, but it happens before he is circumcised. Before the sign of his faith, Abraham receives faith through a gift of grace. Now we talk about all the time. That's why we talk about this all the time with baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Someone once came to me and said, I want to get baptized. I said, that's amazing. Why do you want to get baptized? The response to me was really interesting. They said, I want to get baptized so I can get closer to God. And if we start to view baptism through a lens as like a spiritual leveling up, we will miss out on the reality that baptism is not a leveling up spiritually. It's an outward expression of what God has already done. Baptism doesn't get you closer to God. Baptism is a celebration that God has already come close to you. And Abraham's circumcision happened after God redeemed, after God justified, after God had worked in his life. Then that shows us that God's mission is brought about by the promises of God. Here's what Romans 4, 13 says. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are above the law are heirs, faith is made empty 
And the promise is nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith. So that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. Why is this so important? Why is Paul so focused on communicating that Abraham received God's promises by faith and not by works, by faith and not by the law, by the promises of God and not by his own self-justification? Well, he says it right there. Because if Abraham earned it, because if Abraham was only loved by God because he proved he was worth loving, then in Paul's own words, faith is empty. The promise is nullified. Because Abraham was a mess. Abraham was a liar. Abraham kept taking God's plans into his own hands. Abraham continually made mistake after mistake, sinned, did not listen to and obey God. Did he get it right many times? Yes. Did he get it wrong many times? Also, yes. And so if the promises of God are based on Abraham's behavior and Abraham's work, then it doesn't matter. The promise wouldn't have come true. When we begin to operate as if God's promises are dependent on us, we are trying to accomplish something that does not make sense. We have mixed up the order of faith. And just like Paul has been asserting so clearly, it's all over the Bible. We need to understand this. Hagberg and Gulich um, are these two authors who created this path of spiritual formation. And right in the middle of it, there's this little thing they call the wall. And the wall as part of the journey of spiritual formation is a place where you know the right things. You believe the right things. You, you've even experienced the power of God in your life to save. You've received the Holy Spirit. You're, you're following Jesus. You want to be a good Christian, someone who follows Jesus with full faithfulness. You're serving, you're all in, you're doing your best to do the stuff of what it means to be a Christian, but you feel stuck. You feel like you're coming up against a wall. You have sins in your life that you can't seem to get over. You have struggles that you're facing that you just can't seem to see God in. And this wall that we hit again and again and again, we come up to, and we try to work our own way through it, but that'll never work. Just listen to what Paul writes to the Galatian church. Galatians 3, he writes, You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish that after beginning by the power of the Spirit, you are now trying to finish by works of the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If in fact it was for nothing, so then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you because you're doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham Hear that, Abraham again, who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's what you need to know today, my friends. God's love for you 
is based on his promises, not yours. Because you don't always fulfill your promises. You don't always fulfill your word and neither do I. But God always does. And when that's our primary starting place, that's how we can change. As one author puts it, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted and loved by God. But the gospel says, I am already loved and accepted by God through Jesus Christ, therefore I can obey. And that's what really changes us. That's how we can truly become who God is calling us to be. Because only when we understand that we are like Abraham, that we've been offered the promises and the gift of grace that God gives us, not because of what we've done, not because of who we are, not because how we've been able to get over our sin, but because of God's love for us as shown through Jesus, then we can actually experience the power of God. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist, Abraham believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what he had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old. And also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, it's easy to read something like this and to take the understanding that we're meant to have unwavering faith, unquestioning faith, a faith that never struggles, a faith that never doubts, that looks at reality, that looks at the brokenness of the way things are and, and pretends like everything's okay, that covers our eyes and claps our hands and says, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I refuse to acknowledge or engage the pain of reality. Just take a leap of faith. Just let go and let God. We, we say things that don't even make sense. But, but that's not what Paul is saying here. And that's not what we as leaders in the church are asking you to do. To sh simply shrug at the confusion and the brokenness of the world and go, well, I think God will make it turn out okay. We are not asking you to believe in a God for which there is no evidence. We actually have a class that we call truth and evidence because we believe that Christianity a belief in God, and more specifically, a belief in Jesus Christ, sacrificing his life on a cross and raising from the dead to bring us new life, that that is a real historical thing that has happened and that there is evidence for it, that there is reason to believe that that is true. Here's how John Stott puts this description and understanding of what faith is. To be sure, faith goes beyond reason but it always has a firmly rational basis. In particular, faith is believing or trusting a person and its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. It is always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. 
And it's that reliability, it's that character of God that allows Abraham and Sarah to put their faith in him, even in the doubts, even when they laugh and go, God, how can this be? Even when it looks like there's no way through, even when it later on in his life, when God had provided a son and God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Abraham believes that God will still come through to in Paul's words, hope against hope, that God would follow through and be a God of his word, that even though everything would seem to point to something else, he trusts, not based on blindness, but on the reliability and the character of God's power, that God's power was greater than his circumstances. One theologian, D. Elton Trueblood says, faith is not belief without proof. It is trust without reservation. So here's my question. Do you trust God? Do you trust God based on the character of God displayed ultimately in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus? But more personally, the work and power of God on display in your life. How can we trust God? Because he is the God who has brought dead things to life. That's what we're celebrating this upcoming weekend. As we move towards Easter Sunday, we celebrate that we serve a God who does not ask us for blind faith, who does not ask us for blind obedience, but invites us to experience that he is trustworthy. That what we are going to celebrate is that our God is a God who makes dead things alive, like hundred-year-old couples having a child. But more ultimately than that, that our God is a God who makes dead things alive. That the Easter message is that what was dead can be made alive. As evangelist Leonard Ravenhill puts it, God did not come to make bad men good, but to make dead men alive. That is the message of the gospel that we can be raised to new life, that what in our life feels dead and broken and beyond salvation, that is the place where God can move and where God can work. And that's just as true for you and I as it is for Abraham. Here's how Paul closes this chapter. Verse 23, now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but it was written for us. It will be credited for us to believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here's the beautiful message of the gospel that we celebrate together on Easter Sunday this upcoming week through Holy Week and on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. You are a part of the great story that God is telling from the Garden of Eden where he created all things and sin entered the world and shame entered the world and it seemed like all was lost, but God promised that he would save. To the story of this man named Abraham, who God made a promise, who God invited to experience faith and who put his faith in God to the story of the Israelite people from the Exodus, to the kings like David and Solomon, but finding their ultimate expression in Jesus Christ 
of Nazareth, that we might experience the fullness of what God has for us when we experience faith in Jesus, when we find ourselves in a story that is greater than our own, that it is not up to us, that we do not save ourselves, that just like Abraham, we are proclaimed to be made righteous before God by the promises of God and the work of God. And only after that do we change. Close with these words of Jesus as he prays for us in John 17. Here's what he says. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. The world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, Jesus prays, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love that you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. The gospel message is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God has pursued you, that Jesus has redeemed you, and that by his blood and through the work of his spirit, he is welcoming you in to the family that began with Abraham. Let me pray for you as we close today. Father, thank you so much that you have invited us into your family that out of your great love and that through your promises and that through your work, you have made a way for us to be united with you. That God, we are not saved, we are not redeemed, we are not welcomed as your children based on our work, based on our goodness, based on our own self-glorification, but based on the sole reality that you love us based on the sole work that you did for us on the cross, Lord Jesus. So help us, Lord Jesus, to take hold of that today, that the Easter message is not for one weekend a year, but it's for every moment of every day, that we are those who have been justified by a gift of grace. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask, that you would bring this to the forefront of our minds and that it would be by that reality that we are changed, that we would see that we have already been justified and that would be the pathway through which you would change and shape and form us by your power. God, we thank you that you are the God who makes dead things alive. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would work among us, that you would work in us and that you would work through us to accomplish your mission, that you would bring people into your family and into your kingdom. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for Ridge Church Online this week. I want to let you know we're coming up to Easter 2023, and we've got some really beautiful services 
planned. On Good Friday, we have two services, one at 9 a.m., one at 11 a.m. There's childcare available at the 11 a.m. service only. It's gonna be a beautiful time as a community remembering what Jesus did to save us, participating in communion together. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll have our regular service at 10.30 a.m. as we celebrate and rejoice that God is the God who heals and restores broken things even from the dead. For Easter Sunday and Good Friday, we will not have any online services. So if you primarily tune in with us online, we want to invite you. Join us in person. They're going to be amazing times together. If you have questions about them, reach out to us on our website. Otherwise, we can't wait to see you for Good Friday and Easter Sunday in person this upcoming week.